It's not uncommon for women who are struggling with hormone imbalances to also struggle with anxiety. The root causes underlying anxiety overlap with the root causes of hormone imbalances. Hormone imbalances can make mood issues worse and vice versa. And the answer is not always anti-anxiety medications. And there are alternatives for those who are seeking to manage anxiety without medications. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Rollins about hormones and anxiety. Dr. Jennifer Rollins is an integrative medicine-trained OBGYN with over a decade of women's health experience. She is the CEO and founder of Well Woman MD, a clinic dedicated to a holistic, whole-body approach to care by using nutrition, lifestyle, and cutting-edge testing. She is also the host of Ignite Your Power podcast, a platform for badass female entrepreneurs in the health and wellness industry. Let's dive in. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, Dr. Rollins. I am so glad you're here to talk with me today about a very exciting topic. Um, why don't you tell the audience a little about who you are and what you do? Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk about this. So my name is Dr. Jennifer Rollins. I'm actually a board certified OBGYN, but I also did a two-year fellowship in holistic medicine or integrated medicine. So I spent several years, actually about a decade in clinical practice, practicing as a traditional OBGYN. And in the last four or five years, I've incorporated holistic medicine into what I offer patients to have more tools in my toolbox to help patients uh, address their particular health concern. So interesting. So how has your, your practice shifted now that you have those additional tools to work with? Yeah, it's really about choice. It's about choice for patients. You know, there are women who see me who want to just be on a birth control pill and want sort of the traditional approach, and that's perfectly fine. And there are other women who want a combo of like fixing their hormones, both with medications and diet, lifestyle changes, mind body approaches like yoga. And then there are women who just want to approach it naturally and try the least amount of intervention. So for me, it's about patient choice, giving them all the options and they pick what works for their body. 
Yeah, we talk about it a lot on this podcast, how um, it's not either or, it's not conventional medicine or integrative and functional medicine. It's really a choice and they are meant to address different aspects of care. So it makes sense to integrate all of the tools at our disposal um, for anyone who, who wants that. Yeah, and I mention that to patients all the time. They always get concerned that I'm not going to allow them to be on a pill or not going to say they can be on anxiety medications. And it's like, it's a blend. It's a blend of sort of that Western philosophy, Eastern philosophy together so that you can give people lots of choices. I love that. Um, So one thing that I wanted to have you talk about today, and it was it was spurred by an Instagram post of yours that I saw um, for an event that you were doing in your community, um, but the connection between hormone imbalances and anxiety. So what is that connection uh, between hormone imbalances and mood issues like anxiety and depression? Yeah. A lot of women think, I'm really glad that we're talking about this because I think right now in the the end of the pandemic, there is a lot of anxiety and depression and mood disorders that have occurred from isolation, mean by yourself, by not getting access to the things that you're used to. And also just in general, people's health has changed with um, over the last two years. So I think a lot of women think of anxiety or depression, or let's talk about anxiety as a disease. As you know, you go to the doctor, they say you have anxiety, here's a prescription for a disease. But, but really anxiety is a symptom. It's a symptom of something going on in your body. And really it's a symptom of inflammation in the brain. There is inflammation in the brain. That's what's causing anxiety. And so what we do, we look at it more of a holistic approach that says, what's causing this inflammation? Because I don't know about you, but most women that I talk to, if you say, hey, we could reverse your anxiety by fixing what's causing it. And you don't have to be on Zoloft forever or, you know, Xanax forever. They're going to say, hell yeah. Right. Let's sign me up. Like where do we do this? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But that's sort of the difference between a traditional approach approach to medicine, where you say, here's the, here's the problem. Here's the solution, as opposed to finding what's causing it. So if we know that anxiety is really inflammation of the brain, The goal is to find out what is causing the inflammation of the brain. When you have inflammation in the brain, then you get all these symptoms, not just anxiety. It could be brain fog. It could be neurological, other things. People have chronic headaches, migraines, other things that kind of go with inflammation in the brain. But anxiety is really just a symptom of that. So trying to find out what is the cause of it and then how do we go about fixing that so someone doesn't have to live with debilitating anxiety long-term. And hormone imbalance is just one cause. There are a lot of causes of sort of inflammation in the brain. It could be infections. COVID is a perfect example. Long haul, long haul COVID patients or, or people who have had persistent symptoms after their COVID initial COVID infection are called long haul COVID patients. They have lots of symptoms of brain fog, anxiety, depression, because they had an infection that inflamed their brain. And so they have all these residual symptoms related to that. So infection, toxin exposure, childhood trauma, people who have head injuries. There's a high association of people who've had head injuries like athletes and and other people who have 
you know, anxiety, depression, PTSD, all these mood disorders after that hormone imbalances, specifically when we look at women who have like high estrogen states, like PCOS patients, um, or, you know, other perimenopausal patients, they often, because their hormones, it requires estrogen to make serotonin. So serotonin is like your happy hormone, dopamine's your pleasure hormone, and then cortisol is sort of your stress hormone. Well, it requires estrogen to make those specific hormones. So if you think if you have an imbalance in those hormones, you're not going to make the appropriate amount of hormones that make you feel that the way that you are. So hormonal balance can be a very common cause. This is why you see PCOS patients have four times the rate of anxiety and depression as someone without, because by nature, PCOS is a hormone dysfunction, right? Their, their hormones are uh, out of whack. So you see the hormone and the anxiety um, connection. And it makes some sense too. If you know anything about anxiety, you know, women have more rates of anxiety than men. And we have more in general hormonal imbalances than men because we have a 20, you know, we have this 28 day cycle. And so we have this fluctuations that have to be, um, you know, they have to be working well, as opposed to men don't have this sort of 28 day um, rhythm that happens for them. So there is a, there is a big component of what is causing it. And it can certainly be a hormone that's a hormone imbalance that can be a cause. Yeah, I've been, uh, I feel like we could do an entire whole episode on this, but I've been digging into some of the research that's coming out in long COVID. I'm two months out myself at the moment um, and seeing, you know, the higher inflammation in the body, you know, CRP is higher in people post um, infection. Um, also, you know, adrenals, I know my, my adrenals are trashed at the moment. So <laughs> just really trying to focus on that. Um, but additionally, and, you know, we talk about this a lot here, inflammation is one of the main root causes of symptoms of hormone imbalances, especially when it comes to PCOS. So it's interesting that it's, you know, it all goes back to what's that upstream root cause that's responsible for all of your symptoms, not just, um, you know, treating the symptoms like anxiety or acne or some of these other inflammatory symptoms. Yeah. I think that's where, you know, understanding the cause will help you with the treatment. If the cause is hormonal dysfunction, then you need to focus on what are the hormones that are out of whack to fix, to treat that inflammation. If it's childhood trauma, things like cognitive behavioral therapy are very effective for anxiety because you're, you're going back and you're trying to rewire the thoughts that someone has. You're trying to rewire what happened that imprinted that, um, experience in someone. I mean, if you know of anybody who's had childhood trauma, they can just look at say where they used to live and it causes tremendous amount of anxiety. So you have to rewire all of those perceptions of what happened into a different modality to, so that they don't have those anxieties. So understanding the cause is so much more useful as a physician to like treat as opposed to putting everybody on an antidepressant or an SSRI or, you know, a benzodiazepine that relaxes you because it's not a, everybody can't have the same treatment. It depends on what's causing the issue. If it's the toxin, you got to get rid of the toxin. If it's a heavy metal, you got to get rid of the heavy metal. <laughs> like you have to find out what's the actual reason to make your treatment much more effective. 
Yeah, I remember when I was working in advertising and I was working at one agency in particular that just, you know, had a reputation of being a sweatshop and it it bore out to be true, you know, is 12, 15 hour days sometimes. And it became so clear that I would get off the subway at the subway station stop, come up the top of the steps to the sidewalk. And all of a sudden my palms would start sweating and I'd start shaking and I'd start hyperventilating. And it's like so clearly connected to, I am literally having a panic attack about having to go to my job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so so think about it. That's, you know, you could take Xanax to chill out, or you could figure out how to rewire those moments when you're in the subway and, you know, how you feel and how you respond to it differently. Very different treatments. Yeah. So, you know, I think talking about panic attacks and, and things like anxiety, you know, many of us are familiar with feelings like our brain is racing, um, the sweaty, shaky, hyperventilating feeling. What are some of the, the more common symptoms of anxiety? And also some of the symptoms that people might not realize are ultimately connected to anxiety. So the more common symptoms like you described, so feeling like your heart is racing, sweaty, Um, some people just feel worried, like everything is overwhelming and too much. Um, sometimes you can feel, um, like a tingling sensation. Um, but some less common symptoms can be digestive issues. Children actually are kind of a perfect model for atypical symptoms related to anxiety, right? They say, oh, my tummy hurts. And it's can most often is an anxiety issue, but that they don't have the cognitive ability yet to say, well, it must be my anxiety act, you know, <laughs> like, or, or my heart's racing because of this. So, so digestive issues, feeling, having bloating issues, having, you know, constipation, just abdominal pain, headaches, headaches is kind of an atypical symptom, cold feet, cold hands can be an atypical. So anxiety can often be a, you know, you get symptoms that are actually like physiologically what's happening to your body because of the anxiety. So people can describe feeling cold fingers, cold hands, stomach issues, headaches, brain fog, where they can't really do what they were capable of doing before. Like, you know, I can do this task at work, but I, now I just can't do it for some reason, not knowing why. And difficulty concentrating is another one that, and fatigue that people often sort of don't always think about anxiety, but if your body has sort of been overtaxed, you can get very uh, fatigue is a very common and, you know, difficulty concentrating because of lack of energy. Yeah. So it all comes down to being in that fight or flight mode where Mm -hmm. all of your body's energy and resources are being directed away from the center of your body. That's necessary for proper digestion and for our blood to flow properly and all of those things. Exactly. It's an imbalance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic and you're in that sympathetic mode or fight or flight where you're, you're saving the resource. You don't need to do, you need to, don't need to digest your lunch. <laughs> like you need right. to run from bear. <laughs> like that's the bigger issue. So yes, you sort of often can feel that's where that tingling and cold hands and feet can be related to sort of that fight or flight response. Yeah. So What's the difference between anxiety and stress? I always kind of think of it like stress can be, you know, attributed to a cause, like it's a very cause and effect. Um, but 
anxiety can sometimes pop up out of nowhere with no explainable reason why you should be anxious. Um, How do you describe the difference? So anxiety, the definition of anxiety for like a medical perspective is that you have to have a series of irrational thoughts, irrational thoughts, and it can, and they have to be disruptive to your life. And so there are different types of anxiety. Some people have panic. Some people have generalized anxiety. Some people have PTSD. So, and then you have sort of the more, um, Uh, like obsessive compulsive disorder, some more kind of advanced level OCD. Those are all different types of anxiety, but they have to be accompanied by irrational thoughts that are interfering with your ability to do things. Now, stress, it does interfere with your, if you're stressed out, your ability, but you're not, you're, you're not, you're able to function and you're not having necessarily irrational thoughts. That makes sense. So like, I think of it like a postpartum anxiety patient. I often will describe it like this. If you know, you have, you know, you're at home with the baby, you're, you're tired. You see a sock on the ground. Another person in your household would be like, it's just a sock. Like, it's just, I mean, I didn't do the laundry. I dropped a sock, but the person with postpartum anxiety will often be like, who put the sock on the ground? Why is the sock on the ground? Does it mean I'm a bad mother? Does this mean that I didn't get to laundry? Is everybody going to not like me and think that I can't take care of a baby and do laundry? Like they get into this whole cycle of, so much that's overwhelming and just, uh, you know, looking at the sock and everybody else is like, it's just a sock on the ground. Somebody dropped it. It's just this sort of constant irrational thoughts that, that kind of build up and build up and then just start causing you to not be able to function. Yeah. I could totally see seeing that sock and thinking this sock is ruining my life right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sort of thing. And everybody else is like, who doesn't have anxiety is like, it's a sock, man. (laughs) Right. Where it's, it's not about the sock at all, really. No, that's a a great illustration. I appreciate that, that perspective. Um, So, you know, you also work a lot with women with PCOS and other hormone imbalances. Um, What, you know, Definitely having a diagnosed condition can be anxiety provoking on its own, Um, you know, especially when you're dealing with things like struggling to get pregnant, or maybe you're dealing with symptoms or symptoms that affect the way that you look. Um, How are, how, what are some ways that someone could manage their anxiety around their diagnosis and, you know, those long-term implications of a diagnosis? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different ways you can look at it. One, you want to find the cause. Like if you know someone has PCOS, you know, there's a good chance that their anxiety is driven by their hormones and gut health because mm-hmm. gut health is a big component, a big driver for PCOS. A lot of women don't make that connection between their gut and their brain and how much their gut health actually influences not only them having a mood disorder, but how well they do. And so oftentimes I have to make, help them make that connection between you know, it's not just about estrogen, progesterone. It, a lot of times it's also about the gut and the gut health. And then certainly women with PCOS also have a big adrenal access issue. It's rare that I find someone with PCOS who's like got totally normal stress levels. Like they typically also have that component. So I try to, you know, the biggest thing I try to explain with women, not just PCOS, but, you know, it doesn't define you it doesn't define you. It's diagnosis is just a name on a piece of paper. 
It's just a name on a piece of paper. And a lot of times people's journey is not going to be a straight shot. It's going to be like the bumper cars. You're like, bump, bump, bump. Here we go. Here, oh, going this way. I'm going this way. Like you try to drive it nicely, but it's not going to happen. You bump into everything as you're going through. So trying to understand, like, also, you know, these are all small steps. We just need to address a little bit at a time and you'll see these changes, these small changes make a big difference, but it's about just kind of this forward motion. Even if we take a couple steps back, totally fine. We're just trying to go forward. Yeah. You brought up gut, um, you know, and you previously had mentioned, uh, the neurotransmitters, those, those chemicals that are responsible for the way that we feel, um, how does gut health or lack of gut health impact anxiety levels? So there are, there's literally a gut brain connection with the vagus nerve that connects physically between the gut and the brain. 70% of our immune system is also in our gut. So thinking about women who have autoimmune issues or, you know, PCOS, we don't really put that in the autoimmune, but it acts a lot like autoimmune issues. If you have inflammation and in your gut, then you're automatically setting yourself up for inflammation in the brain. Like it's going to be a connection. What happens in the brain with inflammation, when you have inflammation in the brain is these little macrophages actually attack the cells, the glial cells in the brain. So they actually sort of see the, those that tissue is like, well, maybe I need to get rid of it. It's causing me some problems inflamed. And so long-term people can have serious consequences to their brain health, but short-term they sort of feel these, you know, brain fog and anxiety and all these symptoms that we're describing. So it's about improving your immune system. It's about making sure that the bacteria in the gut are actually healthy and they are responding to estrogen and all the hormones that you have in your body that they need to. So I try to explain to people that so much about what you are trying to address is really also to nourish your gut to make sure that your gut is, um, you know, healthy, that it's not just about sort of, I ate a salad today and there you go, check. <laughs> it's about getting the good bacteria in there, making sure they're fed the right things and making sure that they're functioning correctly. Yeah. I do see, um, often if somebody has inflammation and they have, you know, clinical labs showing that they have systemic inflammation. Um, oftentimes it does go back to the gut where the gut is the root cause of that inflammation. So, you know, it's, it's not as simple as just, you know, eat some turmeric and some ginger. Um, we ultimately have to work on those gut imbalances and get that functioning well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think people think about gut health and they say, well, I eat salads every day or I have, you know, and it's not just about not only what you eat, but also making sure that you have good fiber, right? Making sure that you have the right prebiotics to feed that bacteria, make sure they have the right bacteria. There, there are a lot of studies now looking at the, the actual type of bacteria in PCOS patients, like that they lack lactobacillus, they lack bifidurum. So they're, they're lacking these like bacteria that are so critical for estrogen to break down estrogen. So it's interesting that, you know, some of this can just be going back to just trying to improve that. How much can you affix on so many different levels? Yeah, I think probiotics really get all the, all the limelight, but <laughs> prebiotics are what's really important for getting those good bacteria to, to stick around and do their jobs. 
Yeah, you could put all the workers in the factory, but if you don't actually feed them or give them breaks or make them feel good, they're just going to sit there and not do anything. Like they need to be nurtured. So are there some hormonal conditions where you tend to see anxiety more in your patients? Um, Definitely PCOS. Um, Definitely, you know, perimenopause, menopause transition is a big one because your estrogen levels, all your hormones go down. But when I mentioned, you know, estrogen is required to make those particular hormones. Well, if you have declining levels, then you will not make as much serotonin. And then therefore you will have more mood disorders. And uh, serotonin is a precursor for melatonin for sleep, right? So oftentimes a perimenopausal woman, you hear them say, oh my gosh, I cannot sleep. Like I'm moody and cranky and I cannot sleep, you know, and it makes sense that they're having these sort of downstream effects as well. So I do see it common in women, say 45 to 55, that kind of range where they're going through perimenopause and menopause specifically, and then, um, endo endometriosis, because it's a high inflammatory condition. I mean, the, the nature of endo is inflammation. So I do see women who have high inflammation from endo, and then they ultimately have higher rates of, um, mood disorders. And we, and you know, the data supports that we see that in studies that there's higher risk for women with PCOS, endo, perimenopause, menopause. Yeah. And we're also running into the issue of not as much progesterone during those time periods either. And there's the Mm -hmm. connection between progesterone and GABA. And I always, always describe GABA as the chill neurotransmitter. Um, (laughs) I tell people it's like that first glass of wine at a party where it's like, oh, everything's better now. Like that's, that's GABA talking right there. Yeah. Yeah. And not just hormone related, you know, there are patients that I see who have SIBO who have really bad gut dysbiosis and they, and, and you do look, there are comorbidities. We use the word comorbidities where you see disorders or diseases that have higher anxiety. So IBS, IBD, SIBO definitely has a higher anxiety rate. So you, you can, and, and that sort of sometimes can connect the gut, the gut that people think, Oh, how do I have IBS and this, you know? And so I, I do see that. And I occasionally see patients who are just for gut issues. They just have taken all the antibiotics from their doctor or told to not eat anything. And they're just like, this is not working. I need a better plan. Yeah. Hashimoto's too. Um, you know, there's the whole connection between leaky gut and autoimmune conditions. And I, I definitely see higher anxiety levels in people with Hashimoto's as well. You know, again, we're talking about inflammatory conditions here. Yeah. And Hashimoto's is such a special situation too, because those, those women, and I understand I have it too. Um, it's a, it's a very, it's a slow getting you back to get, it takes a very long time to sort of get you back to feeling well. So oftentimes so many things can kind of play into how quickly you recover as well. Yeah. I think, you know, probably for you as well, most of the women I work with are highly motivated like <laughs> to get things done uh, yeah. yesterday. Um, so <laughs> it, it can take some work to remember that you didn't develop the situation, you know, quickly, it's going to take some time to, to dig you out of the situation. Yeah. We all want it to be fixed ASAP, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. 
If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. Um, What would be some lab tests that people with anxiety who are kind of wondering where it's coming from might want to consider having done? So I base my my lab tests always on a good history. Mm -hmm. What is the, you know, exposure, exposure to toxins, exposure to heavy metals, childhood trauma, head injury. So a good history will help you figure out where are we going to Mm -hmm. figure out where is the inflammation in the brain. And certainly if it's, you know, inflammation, then I'll do a CRP level. If I think it's gut health, I often will often, I definitely do inflammation or inflammatory markers. And sometimes we go down the path of like looking at food sensitivities to see, you know, can they tell me that every time that they've binged on pizza, they're having certain issues, you know, can we kind of get what sort of sensitivities we can look for? Um, there are heavy metal testing. I, I use a lot of functional medicine testing platforms. So I do do heavy metal testing if someone has a, a history for that, um, or they've kind of been through the gamut of testing and they're like, I think this might be what's going on. I often will do heavy metal testing and then certainly hormones. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Dutch test. I know there are some providers that especially traditionally trained that don't like it, but I think it provides valuable information. Now it is a one, you know, it's one snapshot or one moment. So I don't make like all decisions based upon this, but I do think it can be very helpful to understand what, what is the pathway of estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, where are they going? Are we, you know, breaking them down in the liver correctly, breaking them down in the gut correctly? Like where is the sort of dysfunction when I'm talking about hormones? Um, the, the blood test, while they're convenient, because you can get them done in any office, don't always tell you a picture because it's just a one second in time. And women's hormones fluctuate during the day and certainly over a 20 day time frame. So I just don't find it quite as helpful um, as blood test. Um, I mean, sorry, I don't find the blood test quite as helpful as sort of like a Dutch test or saliva testing, mm-hmm. either one. So I typically will order either one. And then, you know, sometimes if it's just childhood trauma, we just, I refer them to a cognitive behavioral therapist and start first because that is definitely um, the biggest barrier you need to get in to get to the right person to be able to start helping you unwind those particular issues. Yeah, I am totally, no, no surprise here. I am totally with you on the Dutch test. Um, I do, I often see criticism from conventional doctors about it, you know, with the question, well, what, what are these results going to do? How are these results going to impact 
the recommendations you make and they do. I mean, that's my, that's my argument right back. They do. They help us see exactly where the issues with hormone metabolism are. They help us see that 24 hour picture of when things are high for you versus when they're low. So has a huge impact on what I decide to recommend in terms of nutrition and supplementation. So you know, I'm glad, glad you also see the value in it because, and, you know, and also you can't test metabolites at all with conventional testing. So that's just mm-hmm. not, not a thing. Um, I also do recommend, uh, working with a therapist for many of my clients as well. Um, you just need that, that extra support sometimes. And sometimes, it's not about the food or it's not about making the lifestyle changes. You really have to, you know, address the reasons why you're not able to implement those. And I'm a big fan of mind body approaches. So in my integrative medicine fellowship, it's mind body and learning breath work and acupuncture um, is a big, big um, help. And, and when patients say what I can do right away, I'm like, you can do breath work. Breath work is free it's easy. It brings you from that sympathetic state to the parasympathetic state. It lowers your heart rate. It lowers your blood pressure. And there's actually data that supports doing breath work in the morning and in the evening will keep people off medications related to anxiety. So it's, it's easy, right? It's easy. And it's a practice. So I do find, especially people who, um, know certain situations puts them in that anxiety provoking situation, them having a breath work practice really helps them. Yes. I love that you emphasize that word practice. Um, my husband and I went on a little two day staycation recently to (laughs) a spa, you know, and we had the sauna and the hot tubs and massage, and it took me probably about maybe eight hours to even bring myself down to the point where I could relax and enjoy those things. Um, And it's a good reminder that when we're not practicing these things regularly, we need to make time for it, much like anything else we would have to practice. So, you know, and start, start small, start with five minutes of breath work or a two minute breath exercise. You know, pretty much everyone has time to fit that in their day. It doesn't have to be 60 minutes of silent meditation right out the gate, you know, Yeah, exactly. I sort of, and I describe this to patients as like a tier one and a tier two. The tier one sort of like something everybody can do. Breath work, very easy. Tier two would be things like meditation that often people find very difficult to start. It's hard to be silent with yourself. Mindfulness is in there. So mindfulness-based practices, tapping is another sort of modality that it, you know, it takes that level of, um, work to, to, to really be invested in trying to learn those modalities. So I always say, you know, just start with breath work. And then, you know, if that's something you feel like you want to take it to a different level, there are sort of those other more advanced techniques that really can are very beneficial for anxiety, but too overwhelming for the average person who is like, what, (laughs) you know, doing 30 minute meditation is very difficult for most people. Yeah. I mean, it's like building any habit. You start, start small, see some success with that, and then continue to layer on and build on to something you're already doing and making a regular practice. 
Are there other uh, nutrition and lifestyle tips that can help lower anxiety? So exercise has been shown to be very effective for um, anxiety. And, but I always tell people, I like the word movement over exercise because I don't want people to feel like it's a chore. Like it should be something you enjoy, like dancing, like singing, like, you know, walking, whatever it is that you enjoy doing that, you know, exercise for 150 minutes a week. There are some good studies looking at that improving anxiety, all all different types of anxiety, but particularly for generalized anxiety disorder. And so I try to encourage patients to do something that they love, like call a friend, go for a walk, listen to a podcast, go for a walk, go swimming, whatever it is that you enjoy. It's got to be something that's going to bring you that happiness, right? If you hate running, don't go running. <laughs> like you need to sort of incorporate exercise in there for sure. And then stress management. We've talked about stress several times, but stress management, you know, you, everybody needs a stress management plan, even if you don't suffer from anxiety in general, whatever it may be journaling, it may be writing, it may be um, reading, it might be just talking to a friend every night for five minutes. I mean, whatever the, the stress reduction technique is, having those in the back pocket is definitely important. Yeah. I always say with, with exercise and movement, you get bonus points if it's something fun, uh, or if it's something you can do outside. Yeah. And there's, there's also that last thing I didn't mention, which is community. Mm -hmm. Um, a big aspect of integrated medicine is community and knowing that, you know, right now we're, we all are suffering from that isolation fatigue from being stuck away from people, but community is such an effective tool to help people with anxiety, knowing you're not the only one, knowing that you're not alone, knowing that you can have someone to talk to, someone to reach out to, and just feeling that sense of, you know, humans are meant to be together. <laughs> like even people who are like on that Alaska show, they're like, wait, wait, they still kind of get together every once in a while to like get resources and to get help from each other. Like we, we need community. And so I think community is also something that's really important for anxiety. Yeah. And as someone who's an off the charts introvert, you know, no matter what scale you measure me on, um, there was one point during the pandemic where it was like, if I had to attend one more zoom happy hour, I was going to stab myself <laughs> in the eye, you know? Um, so you have to figure out like ways that work for you. So for me, yeah. I have like my two friends in my phone that I can message at any time of the day, but you know, it is, it is a reminder that we need to make uh, the effort to connect with other people um, because it's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely for uh, mood disorders because people often feel alone. They feel like they're the only one going through this that no one un understands how hard it is. And there's so many more people that understand you just need to connect with them. Oh yeah. And if you have one of those friends, who's just going to instantly respond back and say, I get it. Or, you know, I hear you like that's, that's what you need in that time for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, so does somebody who has anxiety always need medications or are there alternatives? Yeah. So when I, when I, um, treat someone with anxiety, I try to, to first understand how, much as this interfering with their life. 
if someone can't function, they can't, I, I use medications and I use supplements together and I use nutrition lifestyle and mind body. So it's, it's a big, it's like all the tools, right? And so you want to know which one you want to take out of the toolbox to help someone. So say for instance, that postpartum anxiety example I gave someone who needs to take care of a newborn that are not functioning. They've been brought on by their family because they just can't live. Medications are great in that scenario. We need to get them feeling better because they're more receptive to understanding what is the long-term gain of doing these other modalities. Because if you've ever spoken to somebody who has really severe anxiety, it doesn't matter what you tell them, nothing's sinking because they have so much overwhelm with everything. They need to sort of um, get off the edge of the cliff and be a little bit more mood stabilized so that they can then understand how they can change those things, how they have the control to change those things. So medications I often use are if someone's been on it for a long time and they wanna wean to more natural supplements or they wanna work on these other things, then I keep them on their medication. I don't take them off. And we try to work on what can we do to fix the underlying cause and eventually they'll, they wanna wean themselves off of those medications. So I use all the different tools and I've had patients who are like, you know, I'm just moody during around my period. And I just want to know. So I don't feel so bad. Like I can get to work. I can deal with my kids, but I don't really feel like me. I want to feel like me. So those patients I'll often say, let's work on it from a more natural with nutrition, lifestyle and supplements. And then as you sort of get better and better and figure out your own body and how to change that, then, you know, you never need medication. So it's not a one size fits all. That's the, the really big picture from integrative medicine. It's not a one size fits all. So in a conventional medicine office, I would have said, okay, here's your diagnosis, generalized anxiety. You get a FEXR or the SSRI category. These are the choices based upon your disorder. But in integrative, it's like, let's talk about what your goal is. What is your goal? And how can I help you with these different tools to get to your goal? Because not everybody has the goal of being off medication. Some people want to be on those. You know, it's, it's really about their goal. Yeah. So you kind of have to triage people based on, on where they're at. I mean, I think yes. it's, it sounds all well and good to tell someone to do breathing exercises and meditate and exercise. But if they're having trouble getting out of bed and feeding themselves, um, you know, we need mm-hmm. to work on those basics first so that then they'll have the bandwidth to be able to do some of those more natural approaches. Exactly. Yeah. Meeting people where they are. That's really what it's about. Where are meeting you where you are? Yeah. And I think, you know, like a lot, a lot of other things, there's no quick fix. So there's no say, take this supplement and it's going to alleviate your anxiety because we have to figure out where the anxiety is coming from in the first place. Yeah, I often use supplements to help people start feeling relief, to get some relief. So a lot of times, you know, anxiety comes with insomnia, you know, they just can't sleep or their brain's racing. They just can't, they go to sleep for an hour and they wake up and then they're up for a couple hours and they just can't get back to sleeping. So I often will use supplements to try to get them some relief. And then that way they can work on what is actually causing it. So when I see someone say a perimenopausal woman who's having insomnia issues, it's like, well, let's look at things like valerian root or hops or whatever it is to fix that, to allow them to sleep better, to get to sleep. And then, okay, what is the underlying issue? Is it related to low estrogen? Like what is the actual cause? So um, supplements 
it's rare that I tell someone, oh yeah, that you should be on this supplement forever, unless they have a serious gut issue and an absorption issue, like severe IBS people with Crohn's and some underlying, sometimes those people need nutrient, they're, they're nutrient deficient. So they actually need to be on those to help their gut. But most of the time it's really meant to sort of help you start feeling better. So you can then work on the other things. Yeah. What do you think about, and I feel like it's getting more and more popular as you know, the legal status is changing in more states, but I'm definitely hearing more patients uh, interested in CBD um, or uh, CBD and THC products, um, you know, particularly when it comes to managing mood issues. Um, Do you talk to your patients about that? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm in California, so it's legal. And so I do have patients who use um, marijuana for their anxiety or CBD, depending on, you you can get marijuana, you can be smoking marijuana, or you can use edibles, or you can do CBD. So I do have several patients who will use that as a way for them to sleep at night or a way for their anxiety um, during the day. And so um, I'm not opposed to really obviously harmful. If you're using cocaine to stay awake, I'm going to be like, we do like, let's not do that. But, um, there are some, there is some data looking at certainly, you know, CBD and marijuana have lots of good indications for like seizure disorders and pain. And there are some serious like, um, conditions to where there's some data to support it. Anxiety is kind of a little bit more tricky. It's not an indication uh, that, you know, that, that, that we see, but I do see patients use it. So it's, it's just another option to kind of understand what does that patient want? Like, for instance, I have a patient who uses it to sleep and she has no interest in getting off of it. And that's okay. That's it's her body, her choice. So I try to then make sure that we're being safe with using other things to help her sleep. Right. We don't want to, you know, end up having any interactions per se. So yeah, I think the biggest thing I worry about with patients is, is the polypharmacy thing where people just start picking stuff off the shelf and they're like, Oh, it says sleep. And then they've taken three different things with all the same ingredients in it. And then they're like, well, I can't sleep. I'm like, well, you're, you're taking a ton of this. And so you're having rebound insomnia from these medications. So I worry a little bit when people have access to just kind of go for it. Because I think you have to understand the bigger picture. There are some um, medications that can interact with CBD and nobody really knows marijuana, right? There's no marijuana studies that say, don't take morphine or don't take blood pressure. Like there's, the FDA doesn't fund those types of studies. Yeah, I just, I, I think there might be, you know, something there because of the inflammatory component that you were talking about before. And, you know, we do know the link uh, between CBD and lowering anxiety. Um, so definitely worth, worth looking into. And I hope that there are more studies soon on exactly what it does, but I think, you know, the bottom line with any supplement or anything that you're choosing to take is that, you know, it's not, it's not addressing the root causes of the anxiety. It's just sort of, even, even with adaptogens, I talk to my patients about it, like, they're still a band-aid. They're a natural, a more natural band-aid, but they're still not addressing, you know, all of the lifestyle factors that got you into this place in the first place. 
Sure. Sure. Yeah. I love adaptogens. Those are, I use them a lot too, but yeah, it's all about, and like I said, supplements, I typically use them as a way to sort of make people feel better right away. So then they can start working on the other, the harder stuff, right. The nutritional lifestyle components that are harder work. Yeah. I think so many people just want the supplement without having to do the hard work. And it's always a a reminder that we need to be working on all of the pieces. Yes. Um, What about if someone is looking to transition off of anxiety medications? Is that somewhere where you would work with them to wean them off while also doing some of these more natural approaches? Yes. Yeah. So it's about the goal, right? If someone wants to be off of Zoloft or whatever, um, then what is their, what is their goal? If it's to be off of it, let's talk about how we can start the nutrition and lifestyle piece before we start weaning and then talk about a realistic weaning protocol, depending on what's their dose, what is their symptoms. And sometimes I do use sort of a combination of sort of, so if someone was on Zoloft and they have anxiety, then I'll sometimes use like say lavender with that to help them transition off of that medication. But, um, I always, I really, I know I said this before, but I really go back to like, what is someone's goal and what, how can I help them do that? But yes, I, I can prescribe the conventional medications and the herbs and supplements. It just depends on again, what someone wants. Yeah. I remember, you know, back in those advertising days, I'll share my personal, personal journey here. Uh, when I went to a psychiatrist to get off of Xanax, which was, you know, something that, that I was using at work to be able to function at work. And within a year was on about five different additional medications. Um, you know, where suddenly you're taking medications to deal with the side effects of your medications. Um, But the bottom line is someone should not not stop medications cold turkey, right? Especially we're talking about mood affecting medications. Of course. Yeah. You should not do anything without the help of either the provider who gave it to you or another provider, because yes, there are serious complications for starting some of these, stopping these medications abruptly. And sometimes people, um, feel awful. And then they can make other decisions that may be not good for their health as well. Right. And so I, it's always good to have someone supervise your weaning for sure. And, and yeah, I think that's the downside that some of these medications is you end up taking another one to treat the side effect of that one. So frequently people have weight gain from these medications, and then they take a weight loss drug to help them, and they can't sleep. And then they're taking a sleeping pill and you're just this constant, you know, a cycle of adding and adding and adding when we should be trying to figure out how to get them off. Yeah. It's so important. And I think you mentioned one of the, you know, one of the main reasons that was like the reason why I ultimately ended up getting off everything was the rebound anxiety the next day. You know, it's like, I still was kind of like, Oh, maybe I'll pop a half a Xanax if I have this extra, extra stressful thing coming up. But like the next day rebound anxiety and insomnia was so high that it was like, it wasn't worth it. Like maybe, maybe I should, you know, just take a magnesium instead before bed. Um, but yeah, it can be different for everyone. Like what that ultimate reason is for wanting to go off and wanting to take a more natural approach. 
Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of different reasons. It can be that they feel like it's more natural, but some patients it's expensive. Some medications are really expensive. So it may be a cost issue. It may be that they feel they don't want to be dependent on something. And there are a lot of different reasons why people choose that they want to do it differently. I mean, you have just have to respect their wishes. Absolutely. Um, what would be one thing that you would want women struggling with anxiety to take away from this episode? They're not alone. You're not alone. There are people that can help you and um, don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be, you know, know that there are people who want to help you. So don't, you're not by yourself. Um, I also think I want people to know that, you know, there, there usually is a reason why this is happening. This is a symptom. So there's a reason why this is happening. And um, there are people who are happy to help them figure out what is the reason. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, Tell the audience where they can find you and how they can work with you. So I have a website, wellwoman, it's W-O-M-A-N-M-D.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram. I do my best with my Instagram reels, but I am in my forties. So they can see me making fun of myself on Instagram. And I have a podcast called Ignite Your Pow Her, P-O-W-H-E-R. And that's where I interview um, wonderful, badass female entrepreneurs like Melissa and uh, do solo episodes about different holistic women's health um, issues. Yes, I refer to myself as an Instagram-ma, um, you know, for <laughs> Instagramming over 40. Um, but yes, to my audience, if you have not checked out my interview on Ignite Your Power, go check that out. Um, it was a, a couple months back at this mm-hmm. point. Um, thank you, Dr. Jen, so much for joining us. Um, I think this, this episode is going to be a really important one for a lot of our audience. And I, I so appreciate your expertise in this area. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced.